1: watching the both of you be like flabbergasted by the power of music <laughs> it happens
0: it's like han solo coming out of carbonite this thing that i thought was oh frozen God. in time is now unfrozen <laughs> and now living
2: it's like jurassic park it's
0: jurassic
3: motherfucking park
2: <laughs> this
1: is the pitchfork review i'm Pooja patel the editor-in-chief We're deep in year-end list-making, so we're spending today's show talking about a classic record that was also just reissued, The Replacement's Tim. The new Let It Bleed edition that came out this fall is also our highest-scored reissue of the year. Originally released in 1985, a lot of people consider Tim to be The Replacement's best album, but it was also critiqued for its muddy production. The two versions presented in the Let It Bleed edition are supplemented with demos, alternate takes, and a live set that propelled the box to be a rare, perfect 10 review on Pitchfork. And later in the show, replacements bassist Tommy Stinson joins us to talk about a record that he considers to be a perfect 10. To get into that record, the reissue, and so much more, I'm back in the studio with my friends Jeremy and Ryan. Hello. Hello, Pooja. We're here.
0: Talking like this for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> oh, <Hello>, Pooja. <laughs> Hello, Pooja. Oh, man. Oh, I guess I'm just great. stoked to talk about this band. One of my favorite bands of all time in that hallowed halls of things that I will always listen to mm. until the day I die. I'm going to spill my heart about this silly little Midwestern
1: band. I don't think they're silly or little. Thoughts? Well, no, yeah. <laughs> I would argue they are both
0: silly and little and that. <laughs> <laughs> that goes into a lot of the, a lot of what makes them who they are.
2: Yeah, no, that is true. They're silly, but formative group for so many.
1: Yeah, I am genuinely excited to hear you both talk about this band and this record because I am a casual listener of mm-hmm. this band and I came across them truly just from being like a teenager and seeing their name on soundtracks.
0: Right, through films. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah I think that they got synced in lots of incredibly important teenage movies.
0: Singles being one of them.
1: Yeah, singles. Can't Hardly Wait.
0: Uh-huh. That entire movie, I made out with my high school girlfriend in the back of the theater for the entire movie. You guys are I'm laughing. Making, They're making, laughing in the booth. I'm making a face. That is a really... I, so, like, that movie came out. It's Seth Green and who's... I don't remember who... Jennifer Love it. Hewitt. Jennifer Love yeah. Hewitt. Thank yeah. you. Um, but, like... I don't know, there was a time, an innocent time when you were teenagers and you would go to the movie theater because that's where you could go to make out. And yeah. so we went and bought tickets I to Can't Hardly I was not that wait.
1: teenager. And
0: this is a good segue into <laughs> what I love so much about The Replacements <laughs> because I think they capture a lot of youthful feelings, but like from a remove. Yeah. And there is sort of like a sage tone to how they write about like immaturity and fucking around and getting drunk and falling in love and crushes and that. You know, one of the songs on Tim, which I think is a really good keyhole into how Paul Westerberg, the lead singer of the replacements, approaches songwriting, is Kiss Me on the Bus.
3: On the bus. Okay, don't say hi then. Your tongue, your transfer, your hand, your answer, on the bus.
0: Maybe you might think it's about being on like a dirty, weird city bus. But it's actually a song from, like, the point of view of, like, a 14-year-old. I'm thinking about, like, oh, man, I really want to, like... Kiss this girl on this bus. You and know. you were like,
1: I remember when I used to do that in the movie theater no, when I was 14. I was
0: on the ski trip bus <laughs> sitting next to Jessica Chase coming back from Alpine Valley in Wisconsin, hoping desperately to get a smooch. And I remember very, very you were doing so very much vividly
1: kissing. That's what that's what high school is about. I was I remember not kissing in high very school. Very
0: vividly, uh what's the Boyz II Men Mariah Carey song? One sweet One day. One sweet oh, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So One Sweet Day was playing on the radio. Uh, <laughs> and I was just hoping that she would kiss me during that song because it meant a lot to me. Anyway,
1: what, what, uh, that was on
0: the bus, uh, <laughs> and Paul Westberg wrote a song about me, and so I feel very connected to him.
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, I was like watching Prozac Nation being like, wow, <laughs> things are going to be terrible for children for the future to come. <laughs> and Christina Ricci loses her virginity in I Will Dare Place, you know. <laughs>
2: Dumbledore, what was your intro to the replacements? Well, I think I really got into them in college, like, appropriately enough. You know, they're mm-hmm. this famous kind of college rock band from the 80s. Also, Ted Leo was one of my favorite artists at the time. This is, like, in the early 2000s. And uh, I remember seeing him at a show in Chicago, and he played the song Can't Hardly Wait. And I actually don't think I knew it was a replacement song mm-hmm. at the time. And I was like, oh, what's, this is great. Like, what's, mm-hmm. <laughs> what's this song? And I went home and typed some of the lyrics into Google, and I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, something like that only deepened my love for this group.
1: You know, I had no idea that Ted Leo covered that song, but it makes complete and perfect mm-hmm.
2: sense. What was cool about getting into the replacements in the early 2000s is Paul Westerberg was also putting out a few solo albums at that time. So it was like, here are these classic records, but also this guy is still, like, active and making, like, good music. I really like those albums. I feel like they're maybe a little bit underrated. One of those Westerberg solo albums is called Stereo. There's a song on that album called Only Lie Worth Telling. And the hook is the only lie worth telling is that I'm in love with you. The wonderfully tragic sentiment. I would put a song like that up with some of his replacements classics.
1: Jeremy, as a super fan, we've talked a little bit about Paul Westerberg already, but can you give us the kind of rundown of this band?
0: Absolutely. So Paul Westerberg, lead singer, Tommy Stinson, bass player, Bob Stinson, guitar player, and Chris Mars, drummer. They're all burnouts I don't think any of them graduated high school. I don't think any of them ever got a driver's license. They're all from around Minneapolis. They all had really rough upbringings, Bob and Tommy especially. And they all formed around this idea of just like wanting to play music because there was like kind of nothing else in their life. They were like very much, you know, I'm going to be a musician or I'm going to be a janitor. And that's kind of like what their mindset was. Around
1: when did they form? So they
0: were in the early 80s. By the time they coalesced, they were writing these kind of like gutter snipe, punk rock albums early albums like sorry ma forgot to take out the trash (laughs) their classic song is shiftless when idle they were juvenile but that's just because that was how they could book shows you know Bob Stinson was a huge, like, metal head. He loved Yes and prog rock. And Paul Westerberg loved, like, 70s AM pop music. He loved the radio. He listened to, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis was one of his, like, favorite, like, idols. Mm -hmm. Like, they were punks, but they were sort of punks by default. um, Mm -hmm. Because, like, that was sort of, like, the scene that they gravitated around.
2: I think they were also pretty... Immature and drunk. <laughs> yes. yes. You know, like, I don't know, like, the punk thing wasn't, like, performance art. They were actually, like, a bunch of losers, like, <laughs> making punk music. Right.
0: And I think that goes into what would define the replacements as they came into the mid-80s is that it was sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. Like, people were like, oh, this is the band of drunken losers, and they played right into that. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't want to disabuse anybody of that notion, so they would show up on stage like absolutely three sheets to the wind and go through sets and people would be kind of, uh, I guess, like afraid and or enamored. You know, like when you see a band that is about to fall off the rails, you're like, this is thrilling, but it's also kind of bad. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it displeased a lot of people. And I think it like repelled a lot of people, but also they could have like a cult following, you know? Yeah. Let It Be, they cheekily named it Let It Be after the Beatles, which is sort of like a fuck you to the Beatles but also kind of an homage to the Beatles, mm-hmm. which I think like basically explains like their whole deal. Yeah. It had developed a cult following. It ranked very high on the Village Voice's Paz and Jop poll. Mm-hmm. Critics really loved it. There is like a quote from Paul Westerberg is like god the last thing you want to be is a band that critics love, you know, cuz <laughs> uh-huh. like you'll never uh-huh. go anywhere. So they were very aware of this fact. I don't know if they wanted to do something bigger, but they definitely had different ideas of what they wanted a band to be. They knew they couldn't be just singing about like getting drunk and getting fucked up and hating school and hating authority all Mm -hmm, the time. Mm -hmm. You know, Paul Westerberg was sort of growing as a songwriter and he's a very sensitive, vulnerable person, but he needed kind of an outlet for that. The last song on Let It Be is this wonderful song called Answering Machine, which is one of my favorite songs. And it's just a solo, him, you know, playing electric guitar, With this very clean fill, basically a a kiss off to an answering machine Mm -hmm. because like when you're drunk and you don't want to leave a message or you want to talk to somebody that you hate giving it to an answering Mm machine. It's a classic.
1: Okay, let's take a little break right here and we'll come back and talk a little more.
3: So,
0: like, by the time Tim was coming around, they were being courted by major labels. Seymour Stein, the head of Sire Records, saw them perform at, I think, Irving Plaza and was just so impressed with them. And Seymour Stein is sort of this impresario of the 80s. He was signing a lot of cool acts in New York like Talking Heads, Madonna, The Ramones. He was the coolest guy who you could work with on a major label at that moment, basically.
2: And also, you know, this is the beginning of the indie rock era. There wasn't this Mm -hmm. infrastructure of independent music that we think of now. You know, today a band like The Replacement comes around, there's different options that they could take Mm -hmm. as far as like, Mm -hmm. oh, we're going to sign to this really cool indie label. Those didn't really exist. Or like if they did, they were extremely small and, you know, limited in resources. So... They kind of, like, had to go for broke? Yeah, absolutely. The number one thing that changes with Tim is they get signed to Sire. Mm -hmm. Sire was
0: owned by Warner at the time. So they, all of a sudden, (laughs) they got this influx of cash, which they basically used to pay off all of their debts, which Uh they had acquired, Uh you know, from anywhere from lawyers to (laughs) breaking their contracts with various venues, uh, destruction of property, (laughs) that kind of thing. So when they got that, they were trying to hook up with different producers. They had originally talked with Alex Chilton of Big Star, he produced a couple sessions, which you can find on this new reissue, mm. the Let It Bleed version. But they eventually settled on working with Tommy Ramone, the drummer of the Ramones, who went on to be a producer of great renown. The songwriting here, like the way that's different from this album, is that Bob Stinson, who was sort of the wild card element of the replacements, the one who just liked to rock out, he. He decided to keep a job as a line cook through this entire time Mm -hmm. and was also like abusing drugs to a greater extent to which everyone else in the band was abusing drugs. And so he was kind of absent during these sessions. And that was mostly because Paul was bringing these songs that were a little more vulnerable, slower songs, more emotional songs. I mean, Tommy Ramone was a drummer, and Paul was trying to explain to Chris Mars, being like, look, The song doesn't need to be a barn burner. I need it to be more like. Rolling Stones, Tumbling Dice. I needed mm. to be more of like a rhythm and blues, more of a like a Nancy Sinatra vibe mm-hmm. here, which is, again, like totally different than something they'd ever done before. But it was really a sort of Paul session. And Bob felt very, very ostracized by that fact.
2: Yeah, yeah. I just feel like there wasn't a place for him in a lot of these songs. Right. And it's also really rings true to that stage in your life. I think Westerberg was around 25, 26 when they made this album, you know, in that time, people grow apart. Like Bob mm-hmm. was this kind of totem of punk authenticity in the band. And I feel like that's where his heart was, like in the kind of punk, like, let's fuck it up attitude. And, you know, Westerberg was really trying to mature mm-hmm. in every possible way, including as a songwriter. And, you know, there's some of those friends that you you lose touch with. And that's what was happening, like in this group. 100%. Yeah.
1: That said, I mean, we're talking about maturity and refinement and like being a little more purposeful about vision and all of that. But as we mentioned in the intro, some of the criticism of it is that it was like a little shaggy, Mm -hmm. a little loose. I feel like there is a narrative that despite the success of this record and then the growing acclaim of the previous record that they were self-sabotaging and that they were just not interested in the kind of success that they were very clearly on the path for.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's three examples that are very, (laughs) that speak to the self-sabotaging nature of The Replacements. One was before the album was recorded, they were sent out to CBGB's to do a label showcase and a bunch of label execs from there. They got shit-faced and went out and did a bunch of, like, covers (laughs) of, like, Elvis songs and Kiss songs. Like, Gene Simmons, like,
2: walked in and they're like, let's do Black Diamond. And they also did You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, (laughs) because it was, like, right around Christmas.
3: You
2: know, it's timely, timely cover. yeah. So they just they just didn't give a shit. It's kind of like if you don't love me at my, you're a mean one, Mister Grinch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You're not gonna get mm-hmm. my answering machine. Yeah. You know, you're mm-hmm. not gonna get my can hardly wait. Absolutely.
0: So that's number
2: one. Number two, after Tim,
0: the label was begging them to make a music video because this is the mid eighties, right, right. and they were like, if you want to go to that next level, you need to make a music video. And they they were like, I absolutely not. No one wants to make a video. I mean, music the video. Bastards
1: of Young video is just a radio playing the song. That is correct.
0: Yes, that is yes. that is what they agreed upon. Then I think at the very end, someone destroys it.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: The third thing, they're like, okay, fine. You don't want to do a music video. You don't want to, you know, perform sober for a bunch of label execs. <laughs> we got you a spot on Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm, okay? Mm-hmm. Like, can you just do this? Can you just show up to Saturday Night Live and play? And they were like, no. <laughs> so apparently the rehearsal went really well, mm-hmm. but Bob was like wasted and like didn't come in for his solo. And they're pretty drunk, but they're, they're, they sound okay. You, you know, it's they amazing. sound good. It's an
2: amazing performance. It's
0: incredible. <laughs>
1: No, you wouldn't know.
0: Exactly. But yeah. but it's just sort of like again, like that's sort of the power of this band is voice, this guitar is it's just like wow, holy shit. And then right before Bob's supposed to solo, Paul is like, Come on, fucker. <laughs> because he didn't want him to, like, mess up this mm. solo again when it's actually live. Mm-hmm. And, of course, like, the FCC, uh, you know, Lauren does not approve of foul language right. on his television show.
1: Okay, that said, if you did not know, you'd still be like, that was a fucking sick performance. Yeah. <laughs> and they really
2: took advantage of the liveness yes. of yeah. the yes. show. And, like, a kind of Easter egg is that for the second performance, they all changed clothes. <laughs> like, they exchanged <laughs> <Yeah>. outfits. <laughs> which I thought was great.
0: So, yeah, there's just Just, like, numerous other accounts of them just, like, not caring, not wanting to show up or, like, not doing it. But, again, like, it's, like, the self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, Mm -hmm. their press release says, like, this drunken band of losers might fuck up your college auditorium. (laughs) Wouldn't that be fun to see? Yeah. And they're like, well, I guess we'll just play the part, you know? And what's so great about Tim is that that's when, like, the mask finally slips a little bit. You see the vulnerability. You see Westerberg writing songs about... Uh, how difficult it is to be in the band, How difficult it is to be on stage. How difficult it is to be an alcoholic like he was
3: being, mm-hmm. you know? Turn your back on a pay your back last call First the grass and the
1: leaves at last Here comes the snow. Let's talk a little about. What makes this reissue a perfect 10? It's a high number. It's pretty not, high. It doesn't get much number. higher than
2: that. Uh-huh.
1: To be fair, we do give reissues 10s more often than
2: you might think.
0: Right. Top of mind, the princesses reissues. Right. You know, another right. Minneapolis legend.
2: Yeah, maybe that's the secret. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, writing about a
0: reissue is one of kind of the last sort of consumer report things that can happen because reissues are expensive. It's about the package. It's about, like, what extras come with it. Like, is there anything else there? It's like, is it worth spending $90 to get this... it's a collector's item. It's a collector's item, right.
1: Do you own the box? I do, yeah. What what came in it?
0: So what comes in the box... Is a vinyl, a record of the Ed Stasium mix, which I don't think is a name that we've mentioned yet. Ed Stasium was the engineer for the Ramones mm-hmm. and was somebody who the replacements at the time was thinking about using, but they went with Tommy Ramone instead. So it comes with the Ed Stasium mix. It also comes with the original Tommy Ramone mix that is remastered on CD. It also comes with a couple CDs of demos and a CD of them performing live at the Metro in Chicago in 1985.
1: And when we're talking about a reissue next to an original recording, what are we looking for? Like when you're listening to it, what are you listening for? Yeah, it's hard to
0: quantify that. But one thing that plagued Tim for basically its entire existence was how it sounded. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> right? we talked about <laughs> watching the replacements on Saturday Night Live. Right. And look, the sound on Saturday Night Live is notoriously bad, but you can see the energy that they bring. You can see this kind of power that they have. And Tim didn't do a great job of capturing that. There was a lot of digital reverb on the voice and on the drums. It all sounded really compressed. Now, let me say this. I don't think Tim is an album that should be talked about among other like hi-fi albums like steely dan's asia right like it's an album meant to be listened to on a cassette in your like 84 pontiac sunfire right like that's sort of like the issue and the the thing that i think is really interesting about this reissue and this remix is that did you have to fuck with it like did you have to change it is it really something that that needed to be changed and to me in my ears i was like hell yes, like, finally, (laughs) like, it did need to be changed. I think this is, like, a really good corrective that I think clarifies how they sounded at the time and clarifies how great of a band they were at that moment in time.
2: Yeah, I 100% agree. And it's, you know, it's funny because... The Replacements are a band where you just wanted really someone to put them in a room and put a microphone in the middle of the fucking room and, like, that is it. Like, that's what you want to hear. Like, this isn't a band that's, like, you know, you think of the Beach Boys or something that are using, like, the studio as an instrument. Like, that's not what should be happening. Mm -hmm. Right. This isn't, like, Throbbing Crystal. Like, this isn't an experimental band. Like, this is a pretty basic rock band. So the original mix, the Tommy Ramone one, I feel like he was almost trying to be, like, experimental or, like, take more of, like, using the studio as, like, a heavy hand. Like, you can really hear, like, the reverb and the whole album sounds like it was recorded down a 100-foot hallway. Maybe there was some art, or Mm -hmm. he had an idea of some artful reason for that, but it just doesn't sound very good. (laughs) That's the version that everyone's been living with, and that is a classic, That the songs can even, like, push through what is universally acknowledged as a terrible mix Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. makes the songs even better. It's like they were able to push past this kind of limitation, this obstacle. I mean, when you
0: put on track one of Tim, Hold My Life, and you put on this new mix of it, it's like the Maxell cassette guy, like, his hair blowing back, (laughs) like, in the chair. Come on. The minute I hit play, I was like furiously chatting and texting people like, holy shit, holy shit, like this sounds so amazing. And I have a lot of love for the original version because it's what I lived with forever. But I don't know, it it really is just sort of like this dream world.
1: I have never seen you like bounce up in your chair with like giddy delight (laughs) in talking about the way that something sounds.
2: Yeah, Yeah. It's totally true. Like I had the same exact feeling when I first heard this. It's mind bending. And a big reason is because I've heard these songs so many times you know, it's almost like I've been listening to Tim with a cold for for like 20 years. (laughs) Yeah. And then I like my nasal passages are clear like I can hear 100% like Yeah, this is Tim on Sudafed.
1: (laughs) Wait, so Ryan, there are a couple of versions in this new edition
2: reissue. Mm -hmm. Ed Stasium, he found recordings that were originally left on the cutting room floor for the original mix and reincorporated them into this mix. So even though it was all recorded at the time, there are new elements to be found in these songs. And that's one of the most exciting things hearing a song that you've heard a million times. And all of a sudden, like, on Little Mascara, like, that was the one for me. Like, it literally stopped me in my tracks when I was walking (laughs) in Manhattan. I was like, I was like, what is happening? Like, it was insane (laughs) experience. The biggest thing is that there's a lead guitar line Mm -hmm. in this new remixed version of Little Mascara that is not, I don't think it's on the original at all. It's not at all. It's a whole melody, and it adds dynamics to the song. It really changes the color or, like, the aura of this song Mm -hmm. a bit. I can't remember an experience like that. At the end of Little Mascara, there's also an extra minute
0: of music. Right. And like Ryan, I was sitting in my car. I was about ready to, like, leave to go into a bar to meet somebody. And I was sitting in my car, and I was like... What the fuck is happening right now? (laughs) Like is this is this how long the song normally is? I know there was a fade out, but I thought it faded out much quicker than this. So that to me was like a really wonderful moment.
1: Also (laughs) I'm sorry. I (laughs) am watching the both of you be like flabbergasted by the power of music. It happens but every once in a while. It's like Han
0: Solo coming out of Carbonite. This thing that I thought was frozen in time (laughs) is now unfrozen
1: and now living. It's like Jurassic Park. It's Jurassic motherfucking Park. (laughs) So
2: insane. Yeah,
1: it's chaos theory. I mean, you have definitely persuaded me to go listen to these songs next to each other for hours. Yeah. Was there um, a moment like that or is there something on the album that really like punched you in the gut? The song that I really hit for
0: me this time is the second song. It's called "I'll buy Westerberg talked about how he, it's kind of like his like Broadway song. like mm-hmm. there is something a little great white way about it. What you can hear in that song are Westerberg's like guitar voicings. He is not just playing power chords. He's not just playing major, minor. Like, his voicings are very intricate. There's, like, sixth and sevenths, and all of these harmonies are coming in, and you're hearing it basically for the first time, and you're like, oh, this is him of fully evolved, like, as a songwriter, taking his love of, like, 70s pop and combining it with the sound of this punk band. That moment of alchemy. I've always pictured as like the replacements, like Tim is like the middle of the hourglass. Everything poured into it and then everything pours out of it. And right in that middle convex part is Tim. And I think I'll Buy is like a really good center of that moment. Fucking that song whips ass.
1: Well, it has been extremely fun to talk about this record and this reissue with you and honestly, I feel like my mood has lifted by a factor of like 10 million just being around the two of you talking about this record. I think
0: this record's pretty depressing like all told, like especially the content of it, but it's
1: something to marvel at. It's been really fun. Thank yeah. you for coming on. It's been a hoot name.
2: I think <laughs> as long as long as there's young musicians who are a little bit depressed and a little bit <laughs> drunk, the replacements will stand the test of time. Couldn't have said it better.
1: I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starts in Dea at the center of a tennis triangle. And a very steamy love triangle.
2: Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two.
1: Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So we've talked a little about Tommy Simpson in the context of his role in The Replacements, but he's had an incredible career since, including stints in Soul Asylum and Guns N' Roses, which I saw him in running across the stage at Governor's Ball. It was incredible. As well as fronting his own group, Bash and Pop. Earlier this year, his current band, Cowboys, in the campfire, released their debut album, Wronger. And right now, you can listen to Tommy talk about an album that he considers a perfect 10.
3: Hey, y'all, this is Tommy Stinson, and this is my Perfect Ten. It took me a minute to come up with my Perfect Ten album, actually, because I have several, and I thought, well, which one would I want to talk about the most? And I came back to Revolver, the Beatles, when I'm doing stuff at home, like I'll put a record on and just be washing dishes or do whatever, but I like to go down different mental songscapes, if you will, and that record really has always done that for me. One of my favorite songs off of Revolver, probably one of my favorite songs ever in fact is I'm only sleeping. There is a beautiful melancholiness to it that I have just always related to as far back as I can remember. When I wake up early in the morning lift my head,
0: I'm still when I'm in the middle of a dream.
3: I wake up singing that song at times. Eleanor Rigby, another one. I mean, that orchestration, it's one of those things. I have studied it. I've sat back with my guitar and I've even played keyboard pads with synthesizer instruments on it to try and like play those parts and just understand how they fit together and how they came together if best I could. I'm like, how did they get to this? My brother Bob loved the Beatles implicitly. Like, he would get stoned and just sit in the basement. And we didn't have much of a stereo system back then. It was just a turntable played through guitar amps. And so he would literally put a Beatles record on, have a Fender over here and an amp pig over here, and he would just crank them up. It would make the whole house shake. It was a funny way to listen to records because the audio sound of them coming through a big guitar amp is a lot different than the actual stereo system. But the way he would listen to this stuff sometimes, you would hear different things. And then if you listen to it in the headphones, you go, wow, I heard it better, you know, <laughs> this weird way that Bob's listening to this record right now. And it's one of those records, if you study it, every song pretty much has a thing like that where as a musician and an artist, you kind of go like how did how did, what who start did they start that with a guitar chord or a piano chord george harrison 's i want to tell you. I up, I I I Wanna tell you what that one does to me when I listen to it it makes me think of like sort of a theatrical kind of thing it 's very Upbeat. It's got this like a Broadway, like a Cole Porter kind of vibe almost in a way, you know? The Beatles did have a schmaltzy side, but I think more more than Schmaltzy, sort of a good humored side. And I think in general, bands or groups or artists that are in tune with their humorous side, I relate to them more. In terms of making records and stuff like that, I think that there's a time for a serious song, there's a time for a funny song, there's a time for a rock and roll song, there's a time for a quiet song. And I think they had kind of all of it going on. They had all those creative elements that you strive for as a musician. You know, humor's also part of that. I'm the band. You hear something different every time you hear that record. Something new, instrument, new thing, new riff you didn't hear before. And they will always take advantage of each one track and fill up as much as they could fit on that track. It is my favorite Beatles record, I think.
1: The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. Mark Yoshizumi, Elia Einhorn, and Katie Lau at 3DBRR Producers... Ryan Domble is our showrunner, and Jessica Gramolia is our music supervisor. Tommy Stinson was recorded by Michael Erdley at Tanglewood Productions in Reno, Nevada. Check out Jeremy's review of the Tim Reissue at pitchfork.com. Thanks for listening.